This is episode number 82. Jeff Lenoski is the trail boss. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. To go for a ride with a beginner intermediate rider, they could easily improve 15%, 20% one ride. And when you see that light bulb goes off, there's nothing more rewarding for me than to see that because I remember what that felt like. I remember what it felt like to come home and think like, I learned three new tricks today. Being able to give back to people so that they can feel those moments and then go to festivals and engage with people and have fun riding and make it a value to them. Those are the kind of things I'm totally looking forward to. Hey guys, I'm so happy that you're here and thank you so much for being a part of my community and listening to this show. It really means a lot to me. And the other day I was writing in my journal just What are the things that I do that make me feel the happiest? And this podcast tops the list, even more than mountain biking. I do love mountain biking, don't get me wrong, but I love being able to connect with these guests and share their stories with you guys and then see the ripple effect of that in the world. So thank you so much for listening and for being here because I wouldn't be able to do it without you. I'm heading down south for the holidays, first to the Kirky, otherwise known as Albuquerque, which is where I'm from, Albuquerque, New Mexico. I'll be there for Christmas and a few days after that. And then Matt and I are going to Sedona for a little bit of a training camp. I did some work on the trainer earlier this fall because I had a broken foot. So I'm excited to be out and about and to be riding on the trails again and getting some good old desert sunshine. And speaking of mountain biking, today's guest is a mountain biker. And I try to have a lot of variety with my guests. And that's been some feedback you guys have given me that you love all the variety. But I really wanted to have my friend Jeff Lenoski on the show. The guy is the trail boss. He's a badass. So (laughs) you know that section of trail that you've never seen anyone ride? That one spot where you wonder if it's even possible? Yeah, well, Jeff Lenoski, a.k.a. the trail boss, is just the guy to do it. Jeff tackles the hardest, seemingly unrideable trails, rides them, and documents it for his YouTube channel. And here's a bonus. I asked him if he feels scared or if he ever messes up, but you're going to have to listen to hear what he says. And in case you aren't familiar with Jeff Lenoski, he is a world-class free ride and trials mountain biker with three trials national titles under his belt and the world record for the bunny hop on a full-size mountain bike. He went up to 45.5 inches high during that bunny hop. Maybe you haven't heard of trials. So mountain bike trials is a discipline of mountain biking in which the rider attempts to pass through an obstacle course without setting a foot down. So there could be really narrow balance beams. There could be really tall blocks or walls that they have to jump the bike up. Um, They are like hopping their bike around. They have the most insane handling skills. So if you haven't ever heard of trials, definitely go to YouTube and search it, or even better yet, search Jeff Lenoski's name and trials, and you'll be blown away by what these people can do. I've been mountain biking for 14 years, and there is no way that I would be able to do even an inkling of what those guys have done, guys and gals, let me correct myself. But it's really cool, and Jeff has this great YouTube channel where he teaches people how to do some of the things that he's doing, and it's free. There's coaching out there that's great, and it costs money, which is I have no problem paying for coaching, but being able to get that free access 
from Jeff's channel is amazing. And a great video that I recommend is how not to drop. It's one of his most popular videos and it shows some examples of what not to do and how to fix those problems. And learning how to just have more playful skills on your bike, that's something I've been focusing on for the last five years, really makes a difference in the quality and the fun factor of mountain biking. These bikes that we have are designed to play. They, they have suspension on them and knowing how to use them and knowing how to ride down some technical trails just makes it way more fun. All right, back to Jeff. So not only is he one of the world's most skilled mountain bikers, but he is also a dad to his three children. He also performs shows, trial shows for hundreds of kids all year long. In this episode, we talk about Jeff's evolution as a pro rider since the early 90s how he has transitioned from trials to trail riding, why he decided to start a YouTube channel and some real life advice to help you improve your confidence and your riding. If you're enjoying the show, please take a screenshot and share this on your Instagram or on your Facebook with your friends. And don't forget to tag Jeff and I. We both love seeing this kind of interaction online. And hey, maybe there's something that we can offer to help you guys through your progression of riding, especially Jeff. And last, I wanted to say thank you to those of you who are supporting my work on Patreon. Patreon's a site, it's kind of like a social media site where you can donate a couple bucks a month to helping the growth and development of this show. And something that I've been doing, and this is actually the flagship episode where I actually had a question that I did this with, but I've been telling my patrons in advance who the podcast guests are. That way, if they have a question that they want addressed in the podcast, I actually say who asked the question and I ask it to the guests. So as a patron, you can be a direct contributor to the questions and the topics covered in the show. So I hope you guys enjoy that. I hope that's a great value add for you. And let me know if there's anything else I can do to help you guys and help make this show more entertaining. Awesome. Here is the trail boss, Jeff Lenofsky. The trail boss has landed. Well, <laughs> welcome to the show, Jeff. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to get to chat with you because every time we see each other, it's like in passing at events and it's like, how are you? Good. Okay, got to go. <laughs> exactly. It's always a quick high five and how's it going? Two or three minute catch up. So now we actually scheduled an actual like hour to catch up. I know. And everybody else can listen. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yeah. So you've been in the sport forever. Like the first time I met you was actually at the Ergon booth when I used to work for them at Interbike, but I did a little bit more research on you and you've been in mountain biking since, is it 1989? Yeah. Like as a professional rider, probably since 95, but I started mountain biking in high, like when I graduated high school was when I got my first mountain bike and I grew up riding BMX and skateboard. So that was mm -hmm. kind of always in my DNA a little bit. And then when I went to college, I just got a mountain bike completely thinking it was going to be for transportation. And, you know, mountain biking was booming. So it was a little bit of a kind of a new sport, but really it was just to, like get around campus and stuff like that and completely fell in love with the sport. Yeah. And like you also have done had a long career in riding trials. So for people that aren't familiar with what trials is, can you tell them what that is and then how you learn those skills? Because most people can't do that. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I feel like, you know, trials has always been one of the smallest disciplines of mountain biking, but I've always wondered why it's not one of the biggest because it's the most fundamental thing with mountain biking. Trials focuses 
on riding over obstacles. So when you do a trials competition or you're practicing trials, you're not worried about how far you go. You're not worried about how fast you go. It's just about going over obstacles. So if you've ever thrown a leg over a mountain bike, you've tried to ride over roots or rocks or whatever. I mean, obviously, as you get better, those challenges get bigger. But trials is basically like the most fundamental aspect of mountain biking. It's just riding over stuff. So I grew up riding BMX and skateboards. So when I got my first mountain bike, it was more natural to me to try to jump off of a picnic table because that's what I did on my skateboard than it was to try to go ride 20 miles. So when I got into sport, there was cross-country racing, there was downhill racing, and there was trials. That was basically it. Free riding didn't exist, pump tracks, dirt jumping on mountain bikes, none of that stuff existed. So trials was pretty much like the closest thing to an 18-year-old kid that wanted to ride over stuff and jump over stuff. So I gravitated towards that. Awesome. And I wasn't in the sport in the early 90s. Like, what was the sport like? What was the sport like back then? Grandpappy Jeff, like, what was it like back then? <laughs> well, the, the round wheel was just invented. So that was a huge technological breakthrough and it allowed us to ride our bikes really far. It was cool. Like on the East Coast, trials was really popular because as we see now with mountain biking being so evolved, like everything evolves and like gets more into different niches. But trials back in the day, you would go to a mountain bike race, a cross country race or downhill race. And then they'd always have trials events at on the East Coast, at least, because while they're tabulating results or whatever, it was just kind of like an impromptu thing around the parking lot or, or anything like that. And everybody would just do trials on their regular cross country bike. And the beginners would ride, you know, super basic stuff. It might just be like tight turns. And the experts were riding you know, just kind of gnarly sections of trail, nothing super crazy, just fun, challenging stuff. So trials was always kind of integrated into the local races back then. And uh, I don't know, I feel like it gave people maybe more of a community feel because you would do the race and then everybody would kind of hang out and do trials and wait for results and things like that. So I thought it was always a cool event. But then, you know, as people start wanting to do bigger and better stuff on their trials bikes, they start designing bikes specifically for trials. And then it's kind of no longer doing it on your regular cross country bike anymore. And then it splits off into its whole separate genre. And now 25 years later, guys do the most amazing things that nobody ever dreamt was possible on a trials bike. But the bikes are so extreme that it it's hardly even mountain biking anymore. It's, it's like its own specific discipline. It's kind of crazy. It's like acrobatics almost. It really it really is. It's like a rolling pogo stick. <laughs> it really is like a rolling pogo stick. Yeah. So was there ever any pressure to take on any of the other disciplines like in the 90s? When I first started, I would do all the events like because, like I said, you would go to them and all the disciplines would be taking place. So I would do cross country. I would do downhill racing. I gravitated towards trials because that was kind of like the skateboard BMX kind of the closest thing. And then my second favorite thing was downhill racing. And so I, I would go to races. I would do trials. I would do downhill sport. I was cross country. I was always like sport level mm -hmm. cross country. I would race expert or pro whatever. And in 1993, even though I was only mountain biking like four years, I went to Traverse City, Michigan, and I won the national championship for trials. And it was a little bit of luck because I grew up riding a ton of BMX. So I was really good at like doing bunny hops and kind of like the bigger moves. And I wasn't necessarily like a finesse rider. And with trials, some courses might favor finesse riders. It might be 
you know, wet, slippery routes that aren't necessarily exciting to look at or anything necessarily very big, but it's really, really challenging. And that just takes years of experience in riding. Or it could be bunny hopping onto a picnic table or something like that, or, or the roof of a car. <laughs> and in Traverse City, Michigan, it was all man-made courses because it was Traverse City, Michigan. So there's not a ton of natural terrain around there. So the, the national championship that year was on cars and picnic tables and all kinds of big moves. So I kind of got lucky. I won a national championship only mountain biking for four years. But I did, you know, I rode BMX for probably five years more before that. So I had a background, but so that was 93. And I, I think I might've raced downhill at the national championships too, at the expert level. And then I continued working. That was my senior year of college. So I went back to school to finish up and would make all kinds of Xerox resumes because this was back in the day. We weren't emailing out stuff like I would literally like hand cut out pictures and tape them to white sheets of paper and make resumes and Xerox them and like physically mail them out. And I was going to college for sports marketing. So that was I was kind of always into like making little slogans about myself and whatever my original resume said faster than a speeding bullet able to leap tall boulders <laughs> because I I raced downhill in trials. So I graduated and then I was working a job that I worked at through college, which was just like a, a production job. And now I actually had money because I wasn't a starving college student anymore. So I self-funded my way to my first year of like Norba Nationals, which was like our national series back in the day. And then that year I finished second. And it was basically, like I said, I kind of got lucky in 93 when I won a national championship. So then the next year I would do good in some events, but then you might go to Vermont and it was rainy and slippery and whatever. And I I could get last place, but it was a series. So by, you know, overall standings, I ended up finishing second, which was still pretty good. But I was definitely hot and cold those early years for sure. I could either uncork one and win or I could get last. <laughs> it was like no in between. So that was my first year out of college. And then my second year, I got a grassroots sponsorship with Schwinn. And it was definitely a little bit of luck. I got a grassroots sponsorship offer from Trek. And I went into the, my local bike shop that I had worked at in high school and, and stuff like that. And was super excited to tell them I got sponsored by Trek because Trek was really, really cool at the time. And they said, well, have you ever talked to anybody from Schwinn? And I was like, I don't want to ride for Schwinn. Trek is really cool. And Trek had offered me a one complete bike and one frame set. And I thought that was like the best offer of all time. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, Trials wasn't really pulling down mega sponsorships like cross-country racing was back in the day or anything. And Schwinn came back with an offer of two complete bikes. So... I instantly made the decision, well, I'm definitely riding for Schwinn because two bikes is better than one and a half. So <laughs> I started riding for Schwinn just because it was a better deal. And and it was probably the best decision I ever made. That was pretty much pure luck because um, it was Schwinn's 100th year anniversary and they had a huge PR push because Schwinn was such an iconic brand. And I was a national champion and silver medalist and American and mountain biking was popular so it was a, you know, it was a hot topic. So they had this huge PR push and within like the first three months of riding for them, and it was still just like a grassroots deal. Like I was only getting two frames or two complete bikes. I was on the Today Show and oh, wow. CBS, yeah, CBS Early Show, Regis and Kathy Lee, Dang. all these awesome things. I really didn't realize like the scope of it or, or how much that would mean down the road. It was just the right place at the right time. I was able to give a decent interview 
Schwinn's name was getting me on the show. You know, it was Schwinn's 100th anniversary. Everybody knows Schwinn. But I did have the ability to like hop around inside a TV studio and do like a little demonstration. So um, that was with Schwinn. And then, you know, three or four months into it, I started talking to them. You know, if I didn't have to work full time, I could do even more. And that next year, which was my second or third year riding like as a pro or whatever, I got my first like paid salary from Schwinn and quit my job and thought maybe if I did it for a year or two, it would be awesome. And now it's like 22 years later or something. I never looked back. That's amazing because most mountain bike athletes or cyclists, even like on the Grand Tour level, like people don't have careers that long in our sport. So what do you attribute to having such a long career and being successful at that? Probably a few things. I mean, first of all, the fact that trials is such a niche thing definitely insulates you from competition a little bit because there's not a lot of people that take the time to learn that specific craft. So you're you're already dealing with a smaller pool. So that's one thing. The second thing that I've noticed, because a lot of times I will look back and think like, oh, I wonder what whatever happened to that guy. He was awesome for like a year or two. You know, you look back at a career that's that long. And every moment of time, there's always somebody that's like the next awesome dude. And then they only last like a few years. And I attribute it to a few things. I mean, I went to school for sports management and sports mark with an emphasis in sports marketing. So like I've always kind of understood how to market myself. Right from the get-go, I was always marketing a niche sport, you know, being trials. So it wasn't ever like anybody pounded down my door looking for a trials rider. I always had to figure out ways to try to communicate to people why they needed a trials rider. I remember one of the first books I ever read when I was just getting into it was a book called Ice to Eskimos. And it was a sports marketing book. And it was about the New Jersey Nets and how they like marketed a team that nobody wanted to watch. And so it was like all these creative ideas. So I think being involved in a sport that you weren't necessarily like handed stuff on a silver platter, you kind of always had to work for it, definitely helped. I think that I just generally love bikes. So I've gone through several different phases of my career. From 95 to like 2000, I was riding for Schwinn and I was all into competition trials. So I would just go to all the competitions and I would do those. But then I guess the thing that set me apart from a lot of the other riders was recognizing that the competitions, as far as trials goes, was really just the starting line. And a lot of people would view that as the finish line. So a lot of my competitors and whatever would go to a trials event, they'd stand on the podium and they would think like, that's the finish line. Like I won an event or I did whatever. And I would, you know, win or stand there in second place and be like, all right, that's the starting point. Now I need to go hit up every mountain bike shop or festival or whatever and do demonstrations, like take all these skills and do them in a parking lot or at a festival where people could see what you're doing. You know, so you're not just doing the competition. So that was like the first five years of my career. Then, you know, like I said, I grew up riding BMX and and all that. So I had that background of liking to hit dirt jumps and street riding and whatever. But it was never really a thing, you know, and that was kind of when the whole video boom was starting. And it totally gave me the opportunity to like blend BMX and trials and skateboarding, like that whole influence to kind of start like the precursor, like riding with Ryan Leach, another guy in Canada and Martin Ashton in England and another guy, Martin Hawes. Like we were some of the first guys to do like 
mountain bike street trials like you see Chris Ackerig doing now or Danny McCaskill or whatever. And it was just because it was something fun and new and whatever. And But it was like a totally different sport for me. It wasn't competitive trials. So then I spent probably five to six, seven years filming for videos and doing all that kind of stuff. So I never really got to the point where I burned out to the industry, to sponsors. It was something new and different. So it wasn't like you were doing competitive trials for 12 years at this time or whatever. It was like, you know, you did the competitive trials and you got into the street trials and videos and all that kind of stuff. And then it was, again, just a little bit of, you know, it was bad luck at the time, but I didn't realize it would turn out being good luck. Pretty much like at the height of all those video parts and stuff like that. I was riding one winter and I was hitting some jumps in the snow with Aaron Chase, one of my good buddies. And we were just totally screwing around and I crashed and I broke my leg. And I had always mountain biked but not a ton because I was, you know, basically just always trials riding or street riding. So I didn't really cross country ride a ton, but I did enjoy it. But when I broke my leg in order to rehab, I started cross country riding again. And I really fell in love with it because when I first, first started riding, I would ride a decent amount of trail, you know, I would ride cross country all the time and whatever. But then as I got better, just the demands of being a pro rider, like you just don't have the time. So breaking my leg and coming back from that injury, I started trail riding quite a bit more and really falling in love with it. And then, you know, kind of by necessity, I would have to do photo shoots for Fox or different sponsors. And I wasn't really able to do any kind of trials stuff right away. So I started doing photo shoots, riding cross country and trail riding and stuff like that. Cause there's, you know, you kind of fake it <laughs> until you're rehabbed. And, um, then I've always just been the kind of person that likes validating what I do. So then I thought, well, if I'm going to do all these photo shoots, I should probably try racing or something. And then that was kind of when enduroing was kind of getting popular. So I figured, ah, screw it. I'll do some enduro racing. And I started doing some enduro racing and did pretty well at it. And then I did that for probably three or four years. But then I finally got to the point where I am now, which is where at this point in time is like really where my heart is. It's riding technical trails. It's using all those years of trials experience, which is just trying to ride over the weirdest things or the roughest trails you could find, but doing it on a full suspension mountain bike out on a regular trail or, or maybe not, a, not so much a regular trail, but just trying to go out and seek those, the hardest trails that you could possibly find. And the only reason that's possible now is because of the internet, you know, with trials back in the day, you could ride trials all you want, but unless you did it for a live audience at a festival or a bike shop, it didn't really mean much. And nowadays, 20 years later, like I can go ride the most technical trails, but if nobody ever sees it, it's fun for me, but it's not fun for a sponsor. It's not a viable, <laughs> it's not <a> viable <laughs> business. So now with like the internet, with YouTube and Facebook videos and all that, I have the way to deliver that type of riding to an audience again. I've always thought about why I'm making a concerted effort to YouTube or make videos and stuff like that. And it's kind of like a just a modern day trials demo. It's, it's liking obscure sports and then figuring out a way for people to see it because it's not a competition. You know, it's not a it's not a race where everybody comes and watch. You got to you do fun stuff, but you got to figure out a way for people to see it. And thanks to the Internet, <laughs> it's, it's kind of possible. Yeah, I was thinking about just what the evolution of 
kind of what a sponsorship deliverable would be like in the 90s, like before you had your first email address. And a lot of us in the sport now, you know, we just weren't in the sport doing mountain biking back then. So, I mean, to me, it seems like there'd be a lot of amazing opportunity now with the internet, but also there's in some ways more competition, but the competition can make you better too, because it brings more awareness to what the sport of mountain biking actually is. Yeah, honestly speaking, it was challenging. So as far as like a deliverable, I listed all the things I've done over my career. And it sounds like, you know, I just like tried this and tried that. The main deliverable that I, that I did for the past 20 years was trials demos. So that's always been like the backbone of my sport, because there's not many guys out there that could go and perform for a live audience. So that kind of was always my deliverable. Schwinn never sponsored me necessarily for the trials competitions, but the trials competitions were what allowed me to get trials demos. That was the reason why like the Vans Warp Tour brought myself and Ryan Leach on because he was the best rider in Canada. I was the best rider in the U.S. So you couldn't get on the Vans Warp Tour without doing the trials competitions. So they go hand in hand. But the demos were always what the sponsors kind of sponsored you for because that was a fun, unique way to get, you know, your product or your message in front of a live audience. So that's why over the past 20 years that I could say, oh, I want to film for mountain bike street videos now. Oh, you know, what? I want to race enduro. It's not totally true. The, the backbone to all that, the thing that I was truly sponsored for were those trials demos. So that gave me the flexibility. But it totally has changed. And coming from the era of like the mountain bike video or mountain bike film era. VHS. Where, yeah, exactly. VHS. <laughs> VHS, D- DVD, all that kind of stuff. But like, you know, there was only a handful of productions a year. So if you were good enough or lucky enough to get in a video, you were one of 10 riders that guys in the bike shop would burn those VHS tapes out or DVDs and people would buy it and you didn't have to compete against many other riders. So it was really humbling, eye-opening, whatever, when I started YouTubing two or three years ago. Because you realize that like I could put out a video and and there's so much other stuff and there's no gatekeeper or whatever. Like before somebody had to say, Sonia, we're going to put you in a video and somebody's dictating who the world gets to see, you know. And if you're on the athlete side of it, it's awesome because you're one of eight dudes and you could get all kinds of sponsorships and whatever because there's only so many people in those videos. And then nowadays with YouTube, you really have to try your best or to connect with your audience or give them something different than what other people are doing because everybody has the same ability and the same access to the audience. There's no gatekeeper anymore. It's as hard as you want to work, basically. You know, obviously good riding's always going to shine, but you also have to have good personality. You have to give people what they want. It's totally different nowadays. It's exciting. It's challenging, but it's exciting. Yeah, the thing that I really like about your YouTube channel, and this is also part of the showmanship of being a performer, because a lot of times like racing isn't performing because it's not televised and nobody's watching. So being on the performance side of things in terms of like having an audience that you're either helping or that you're entertaining, especially on YouTube, it's awesome because you bring a lot of value to the people that watch your videos. Like a video that I shared today was like, well, I think you title it How Not to Drop. But like, like how to go off a drop. And, you know, there's a lot of people who just like myself included, when I got into mountain biking, I just started riding. 
And it wasn't until I moved to Canada where I had to say, wait a second, like, I don't actually know how to mountain bike. I just go ride. I'm, I'm going to have to learn how to mountain bike. And the type of content you put out there is like helping people learn how to mountain bike properly. And because of the credibility you have, people can go to your channel and see this is how this is actually supposed to be done because there's other people who are putting YouTube videos up showing like how to drop, but it's actually wrong. So <laughs> yeah, it's awesome right, that you have right. that content out there. Yeah. And I, and that's kind of like an extension of the trials demos. Like, so if any of the listeners, I mean, I'm sure you could YouTube trials demo, or I have some trials demos, but it's basically just a live performance, you know? And when you do those live performances, I love it because you see the immediate reaction from fans and in the audience and you see people like the lights clicking off that people want to go out and mountain bike or just road bike in general. So it's really cool. And when you do those demos, it's not necessarily the hardest thing is what people like. They like what looks like you're having fun or things that are flashy or whatever. So it kind of goes into the YouTube channel. Again, when I first started two years ago, I basically was only making trail boss videos, which were me riding trails that are like, quote, air quotes, unrideable. So different trails around the country that have like those signature sections where people like look at it and are like, wow, I didn't think the waterfall on National Trail in Phoenix was rideable or, you know, it was the trail that actually sparked the whole trail boss series was in Indiana. It's a trail called Schooner's Trace. And I would go to Indiana every year. And this woman kept every time I would do a trials demo, she would be there. And she's like, I got the trail for you. I've never seen anybody clean it. And I would like kind of think to myself, well, how hard could this trail be? It's in Indiana. And I went there and I was like, wow, this trail is <laughs> this trail is really, really hard. This would make a cool video series. But when I first started doing the videos, I just put out videos of me riding really, really hard stuff. And I thought like, that's what's going to resonate with everybody. But then the longer I got into it, they like to see how-to stuff and some more fun stuff or more engaging stuff. And that's like totally a natural progression of the showmanship that you got to do for a trials demo because you can do a trials performance, put your head down, not look at the audience, not look like you're having fun and do the craziest stuff. Or you could like engage with the audience let them see that you're having fun and do stuff that maybe isn't even as hard and they're going to like it 10 times more. So it's really all about that engagement. So I've started to realize like, Hey, I've done trials demos for 20 years. I love engaging the audience. You just have to do it on YouTube, even though you don't see them because you're doing it to like your GoPro or something like that. You still got to do the same thing because there's somebody on the other end watching it. Yeah. And I have kind of a hard question for you. It's really hard whenever you put content out there and then you're kind of not in control of who sees it. And then there's like number of followers, number of subscribers, number of views. And then to some people that becomes like how relevant or like how validated you are. So how do you deal with that? Because, you know, all of us have to kind of go through that and it can be really frustrating. But if it's going well, it can also be really like awesome. So how do you deal with that roller coaster? It's super challenging because it's very, very, very easy to get caught up in like the likes and the clicks and all that kind of stuff. I'd be lying if I said that I don't do that. But I think the thing for me that's really made it like really hit home that's like resonating with people and that's actual people watching it and stuff. Last year, I spent a lot of time going to different mountain bike festivals. And when you see the awareness of people out there shouting trail boss or whatever or just telling you that you like that they watched your channel 
and stuff like that, you you really see that real people are really watching it and they're into it and they're learning from it. And if I put out a video and I have a bunch of comments that people have learned something from it or, you know, were entertained or whatever, I'm not really that concerned with like how many views as long as I see that there's people feeling like they got some kind of value from it. So, you know, two or three comments that, you know, somebody tried something they never thought they could do or looked at something differently mean way more than thousands of likes, you know, just knowing that you've turned on that light bulb for a few people is way more important. Yeah, I think it comes down to the motive because it's really common for people to just want to become famous on social media. And the motive there isn't really like, it's kind of a shallow motive. But if your motive is to like help people, then it really does help you. If you're comparing yourself to people who are getting like millions of views, if you're making a difference in people's lives, like it really does bring you that satisfaction and fulfillment. But the challenging part is like, the money part of it, because people who are doing social media for business, myself included, it's like we're monetizing that in some way. So it's hard sometimes to separate the two. But ultimately, it's like, would you be doing this if you weren't getting paid to do it because you love it? I would definitely be doing it regardless. I think as far as like sponsorship goes and things like that, I'm pitching myself for 2019 and stuff like that, basing it quite a bit off of like YouTube and things like that, or just, you know, just numbers in general. And there's definitely people out there with bigger channels and stuff like that. But the thing that I try to communicate, and fortunately, I think a lot of people recognize is just authenticity. And also like, if I'm making content that I feel is very authentic to who I am and what I'm trying to portray, I realize that I'm never going to be very, very wide, but I could be very deep with an audience. So I'm not worried about YouTube channels with 500,000 people and can you downhill on a Walmart bike or will your fat bike float or, you know, all kinds of quirky videos. I want to have an audience of people that are really into trail riding. It doesn't matter if you're an expert or a beginner, but I love when I go to an event and I'll see like the hardest hardcore guy come and ask for a trail bus sticker and put it on their bike. It's like the most flattering thing ever. And also like the 12 year old kid that like just started riding, puts it on his bike. Like I just want it to be a core authentic audience that if you're into that type of riding, that's the place to go. And if you can do that, then I don't think it's necessarily how many numbers it's the impressions that you're making. And you know, somebody like yourself, who's a pro rider that does things that are very close to you and things that you believe in or whatever, those interactions that you make with fans are worth way more than if it's just like a general conversation. So true. So where did the name Trail Boss come from? The name Trail Boss actually did not come from me. I was kicking around the idea of a video series, and I knew that I wanted to do a video series focused on, like I said, the first trail that I ever, I was I was getting the idea that I wanted to do a video series. And as I was also getting more into trail riding, but still traveling around to do a lot of trials demos, that same kind of challenge I said that I got in Indiana started popping up more and more. So first happened in Indiana, then I'd go to California and, and there'd be somebody that watched my trials demo and they might have seen a picture of me in a magazine trail biking and they'd say, I got the trail for you. It's it's this one. And then I'd go to Arizona and they'd say, I got the trail for you. It's national trail. You know, there was always like that challenge. Like they'd watch you trials ride and then they'd say, I got the trail that I've never seen anybody try. So I was thinking of names like trail tamers and 
things like that. Like that was my actual first name that I wanted to name. It was Trail Tamers. And then one of my friends that works at Giant was like, well, what do you think of Trail Boss? And I was like, I don't know. That kind of sounds cocky. I, you know, I don't know if, if that. And plus, like, you know, there's BMX bikes named the Trail Boss. Like, it's just a very common name in the industry. So I was like, you know, a lot of people use that. And I don't know. It, it doesn't really fit my personality to just, like, be claiming it so hard. But then I started to think, like, so then I wrote this like treatment for like some of my first sponsorship pitches that were that was more from the perspective of like with the proper intel. Like if if you're out riding with your friends and you clean a section, like you're the trail boss, like you're the hero of the ride or whatever. And with the proper like intel, anybody could be a trail boss. So the channel was more about like using those videos to inspire people and like if you watch my trail of me riding national trail. Like, sure, I, I cleaned it and I'm the trail boss or whatever, but like, this is what it looks like to do it. And a lot of times with riding, like if you just see somebody do it and you know that's possible, then it helps you do it. And it shows you the line, how to do it. And and a lot of it involves some tips and whatever. So it's, it's basically like, here's the information, go out and be a trail boss. Like we all could be trail bosses. It's not like, like being a trail boss is when you're, you're the hero of your, your ride with your friends. I love that. Actually, yeah. I never even heard of Trail Boss, that, that terminology, until I saw it from you. So it's oh, not as cool. common as you think. <laughs> yeah, there's an old school BMX bike called the Trail Boss, and Giant has used the hashtag Trail Boss, and there's a Trail Boss WTV tire. Hmm. So there's, there's lots of uses for Trail Boss, just in different areas. So you mentioned, you know, riding a gnarly section of trail, and I've had the luxury of riding lots of different types of bikes, and the type of bike you ride can make a massive difference, like riding like a 100 mil cross-country bike versus riding like a 150 to 170 slacked out bike can make a, a nine-day difference on a trail, like you almost don't even feel the trail underneath you in some cases. So, you know, over the years, technology has changed a lot. Like I've been riding mountain bikes for 15 years and one of my patrons on Patreon, I've, I started doing this thing where people are able to submit questions personally to the podcast. So there's a, a guy named Philip Fowler who submitted an awesome question and it's with the progression of bikes and technology, has it changed the way you ride or made things possible that may not have been possible, say 10 to 15 years ago? I would say absolutely. I don't think that I would be so enamored with technical trail riding now if the bikes weren't as good as they are. Because nowadays, you can go out on a mountain bike ride and you're getting a little bit of downhill in, you're getting some technical riding in, you're getting some climbing for fitness. So just the versatility of these bikes nowadays opens so many doors. And then also like dropper post oh, yeah. development, which allows you to ride the bikes like you never could before. The whole flat pedal phenomenon on trail bikes wouldn't have been possible without dropper posts because you just can't ride flat pedals with a with a high seat post. You don't have the room to move around and stuff like that. So bike development definitely has created this whole arena, the whole technical or the whole trail riding arena, you know, like the stuff that you can climb, even a 160 millimeter travel bike nowadays and then downhill in better control than you could have on a downhill bike 10 years ago. It's just amazing. Yeah, it's so cool to be a part of that like boom in technology. What excites you the most about the next 10 years of your career? Not a, this doesn't really have anything to do with bike technology, but really just trying to build an audience online, but then also then use that online platform to go to festivals and things like that to then actually get out and meet people. 
Because if I tried to put together a group ride five years ago, it, I might have a handful of people. And last year, every group ride that I went to, you know, at different festivals and stuff, we had awesome turnouts. There was there's tons of people. And when I do those group rides, I'm even like calling them trail boss group rides. And it's super fun because we go out and we ride the local trails and it's almost like a rolling instruction. So it's not trying to teach people how to hop over a log in a parking lot or slalom through cones. Like we go on regular trails and we do no drop rides. And when we get to tricky sections, we session them because I feel like that's the biggest reason why grownups don't get better at mountain biking. You know, you see 30-year-old guys, 40-year-old guys that say, man, I wish I learned how to bunny hop and whatever. And the reason they can't is because they get their first mountain bike. If they, if they didn't grow up riding bikes as a kid, they get their first bicycle and they're more concerned with fitness or how far you go or how fast you go and hanging with their buddies rather than just like going out on your bike and playing. You know, you learn so much stuff as a kid, just jumping curbs and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you don't do it. You just do it because you're out having fun. And before you know it, like everything clicks and you just learn all these things. But if you get a mountain bike when you're an adult, it's just like, I need to keep my heart rate up. I need to get 15 miles in. And when you get to a section and you screw it up, you're like, I don't want to keep my friends waiting. And you just pass it by and I'll get it next ride. And if people would just stop, maybe just one ride a week. And when you screw up a section, just, you know, if it's not dangerous, try it. Try it till you get it. You know, <laughs> like, what's the hard? You're never going to get it if you don't practice it. And if you just try it once, you know, if it's going to take you six tries to get it and you always say next time, next time, next time, it could be six weeks before you ever learn it versus just take one ride a week to go out and session stuff. And there might be five tricky things on a trail that you normally ride and you hit them each three or four times and you get it. And then the next time you go out and ride, you know, you clean it up a little bit and maybe only one or two things screw you up. And before you know it, like just sessioning stuff like that allows you to clean all those obstacles and stuff. So Back to your question, like the most exciting thing for me in the next five years is trying to build an audience so that I could put out cool content that gets people more excited about riding and, you know, give back all these years of practice and training and everything I've done so that other people could do it. You know, you've been riding professionally as super long like I have, and and we both know that it's so hard to see big gains when you're when you've been riding for a long time. You know, for you or I, like one percent better is amazing and to go for a ride with a beginner intermediate rider they could easily improve 15 percent 20 percent one ride and when you see that light bulb goes off there's nothing more rewarding for me than to see that because i remember what that felt like i remember what it felt like to come home and think like i learned three new tricks today you know or something like that and now that i've been riding 22 years it's like man, I, I did that 1% better. <laughs> and like, we noticed the difference, but it's not those big monumental gains. So being able to give back to people so that they can feel those moments and then go to festivals and, and engage with people and have fun riding and make it a value to them. Those are the kind of things I'm totally looking forward to. Yeah, that's such an amazing legacy to make other people's rides better. Like, I love what you said about sessioning because I was that person until I moved to where I live now because if you don't go back in session, you basically can't ride and that's not fun. And like, you know, I'm someone who's been doing cross country or ultra endurance for a very long time. But for me, like my biggest joy with mountain biking now is getting better at my technical skills. And it's something that I do every single ride. 
And like the joy of going back and riding something and riding it again. And you get like the adrenaline rush, number one, which is awesome. But then over time, it's like you get to see where you improved and improvement is really the thing that keeps us coming back every ride. So like you'll see something that you wish that you could have ridden and you always said, oh, I wish I could have done that. And then you work at it. And then a year later, it's like that thing is like such a joke to you and you can't even believe that it was hard a year ago. And then you can help your friends ride it too because whenever you're riding with people that, especially people that are about the same level as you, and they see you ride something, they believe that they can do it too, especially if they assign the same level of expertise. So I think it's really powerful to continually work on those skills because it just makes riding so much more fun. That's 100% true. And that's one of the ideas behind like the videos because with trials back in the day, that's all it is. It's just only sessioning. So we would basically just sit there in front of a problem, it might be trying to get up on a big rock or ride a balance beam on some fallen tree or whatever. But myself and my friends, we would sit there and that's all you do is just take cracks at it until somebody gets it. And you could literally try something 20 times. I take a turn, you take a turn, I take a turn and nobody's getting it. Nobody's getting it. And then it was always the second somebody got it, the next try your friend would get it or I would get it or whatever because you just see that it's possible and it just like unlocks your mind. And then, you know, you're not thinking, you know, for the first 20 tries, you're both thinking it's impossible. And then somebody gets it and you're like, now I've seen it, I just have to do it. And it was always like nine times out of 10, if somebody did it next try, the other person does it. But you just both tried it 20 times in a row. So it's definitely like a mental thing, like seeing it and just believing it's possible and then you just do it. Yeah, like it teaches you about perseverance and work ethic and also like not being afraid to fall. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, one of the curses, though, of being a technical riding addict. Because if I was into like rampage riding or something where you have to huck off a 50-foot cliff, you basically get one shot. (laughs) But when you're trying to ride down a fallen tree that's maybe only four inches diameter and it's only a foot off the ground, you're not going to get hurt. So you have the curse of being able to try it a hundred times and it takes a certain personality to be the idiot that'll sit there and try it a hundred times. <laughs> and most of my friends will always be like, dude, just stop. And I'd be like, no, I have to try five more times. And it's sometimes it's just like the worst because you'll try something so many times that you're not even happy that you did it anymore. You're just like glad you could stop. <laughs> you're, you're just glad you could stop. That's so funny. Yeah, you're like, please let me get this so I don't have to do it again. Yeah, like, I don't want to do it 200 times. Exactly. There's absolutely been moves in my career that I've tried hundreds of times. I love that. That's so cool. (laughs) So, like, I have a couple of questions about in terms of giving people advice. So, like, we just mentioned falling. And, like, a lot of times people will say, oh, I'm too old for that. Or, like, I'm too afraid. Like, how do you do that? And I think a lot of times people don't realize that it's like it's baby steps to getting to riding the big thing. So like, how would you help people get over their fear of falling and their fear of getting hurt? Progression, 100%. Progression is a fundamental of trials riding. And it's the same thing I apply to technical trail riding. If I'm ever feeling nervous about a move or whatever, then I'll always try to find something similar with less or no consequence and dial in that move and dial in the muscle memory and whatever, and then try it with the move that's kind of scaring you or the higher consequence. So that's something I think relatively speaking why I've been able to keep my trials career relatively injury-free because 
with a dirt jump, you could pedal at a a huge dirt jump that you probably don't have any business hitting. And before you know it, you're flying through the air and that's when you figure out you probably shouldn't be hitting this jump and then things go wrong and you get hurt. But with trials, like if you're going to fall off of something five feet tall, then you've probably figured out how you probably practice getting on something one foot tall and then two feet tall and three feet tall. And you've fallen off those lower things and you've also figured out all the muscle memory and all that. So before you get into the, like the high consequence move that could hurt you, you've practiced the smaller steps so many times. So that's why progression really is like the main way to get around all those problems. And then also like, you know, if, if balance beams are scaring you, you could take the same exact beam and lay it on the ground or put it four feet in the air. And when you put it four feet in the air, it's going to be really scary and you could get hurt doing it. But if you do it on one foot off the ground, if you just get used to like your ejection, you know, how, how your escape route, if, if things do go wrong, how to jump off and how to, you know, save yourself or whatever. You also get very used to like when that time to give up is, you know, because you'll learn that like you learn when you should quit or when you shouldn't. And I'm, I'm talking about like when start, things start to go wrong, you know, when you're when you're at the precipice of falling or not falling. Like learning when the moment is that you really should jump off and start figuring out an evacuation plan or stick with it. So that progression is really the best way because it teaches you all the fundamentals and it teaches you the moves and the muscle memory and whatever in low consequence things. And that's something that I'll always do. It's, it's not uncommon that when I'm riding a trail or if I'm riding still trials in the street or something like that and there's a really scary move. I'll always try to find something very similar with no consequence and just like remember the muscle memory and then do it and usually works out pretty well. Yeah, whenever I think about that, it's like, oh, because I've seen videos of you like jump your bike from the ground all the way up on top of like a brick wall, like from stopped. And you think, well, I'm never going to be able to do that. But yeah, you probably started with like a curb and then something a little exactly. bit bigger until it's like, you know, that without a doubt, you know, chances are you're going to make it. <laughs> Yeah, usually like I'm usually pretty confident <laughs> it, it might not work out this way, but if I try something, I'm usually pretty confident that it's going to work out. You're not just like rolling the dice saying like, what, let's see what happens. And I'm usually pretty, I'm pretty probably 90% sure that it's going to work. And it might only work 50% of the time, but at least I go into it thinking it's going to work 90% of the time. Yeah. And I've seen videos of you jumping over people. Like have that, has that ever gone awry? Uh, knock on wood. <laughs> <laughs> no, it really hasn't really gone gone awry. You'd be surprised how much harder you pull up on your handlebars when you have to jump over people versus a log. Now, this is like a little bit changing gears, but you have three kids, right? I do. How, yep. old, how old are your kids? Uh, my oldest son is 17. And then I have a 15-year-old daughter and I have an eight-year-old son. And like... What's that been like for them having this like crazy badass dad? Like, do you think they realize that or do you think they're like, oh, God, it's just dad and he's annoying? Yeah, there's <laughs> zero special treatment. <laughs> I'm just the dad who dresses agent appropriately and like hangs out with them a little bit more, <laughs> but, but definitely no special treatment. And did you try to get them into riding or was it like you can just pick whatever you want and go do that? Yeah, like all my kids will go for bike rides casually and stuff like that. My son rode BMX for a bit, but my oldest son was always into lacrosse. And I think as a parent, like when you're so into something, it's just my opinion. Kids are probably intimidated, you know, like, are you going to live up to that? So 
my oldest son Jack would always ride for fun or whatever, but he never like really took it super seriously. And he was always into lacrosse. So as long as he's out there being active and having fun with a sport, I don't really care. Like it'd be awesome. Now that he's 17 and could completely keep up. No problem. Like it'd be sweet if he wants to get into mountain biking with me. My daughter who's 15 is cut exactly from the same cloth as me. Same tenacity, same drive, same everything, but she does competition cheer. And there's so many parallels because it's all like it, a lot of it is individual training and body awareness and technique and all that kind of stuff. So she's me in a girl version. She does all the same stuff I did when I was her age. Just like can't think I can't think of anything else other than cheer versus like how I used to think about bikes and whatever. And then my youngest son is eight. And he's really liking mountain biking now. Like, I'll take him out for rides and stuff like that. And he really enjoys it. So he might be the mountain biker in the family. Awesome. And so, like, you do a lot of these group rides at the shows. And I'm sure you've ridden with your kids. And does your wife ride? Nope. Doesn't ride at all. (laughs) So, yeah, like, there's all different ability levels on these rides. And, like, maybe people are there with their spouse. And a big source of contention amongst people is, like, Well, especially with mountain biking, which is so skill dependent, it's how do you make sure that everybody has fun on these rides? Like whether it be like an organized group ride or you're just inviting people out to go ride because it could be massive between fitness and skill. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like that could be another situation where I sit back and I look at different things going on in my career and I wonder if it's like genius or dumb luck. (laughs) So last year in Florida, I did my first quote unquote trail boss ride and it was at Santos Mountain Bike Park. I don't know if you've ever been there in Ocala. And all it's very flat, easy riding, and but there's a lot of spots where you could stop in session. And I just figured I was going to try something different and make it a ride where we stopped and sessioned. And it worked out awesome because, you know, with the group rides, I like to be all inclusive. I don't want to just like make it a hammer ride or make it a beginner ride. I like, if you want to come ride with me, like I'm down, I want as many people as possible. So a lot of times you will get like the hammerhead dude or got a girl or whatever. And that just want to like go hard and fast. And then you'll get the beginner intermediate person. And by doing the rides where the intent is to stop and session things, it works out awesome because when you get somebody like yourself, that's an awesome rider chances are you're going to be totally stoked showing off for the group because you and I could both tackle a section and and show them like how to do it. And you kind of get a chance to show off as well. So, you know, you're all stoked and whatever. And the people who are beginners and intermediates, they're genuinely trying over and over and everybody's kind of cheering them on and encouraging them to get on. And it keeps everybody together and it keeps everybody engaged. So it, it actually worked out really good. And then I kind of did that same model at most of the other festivals I went to. And it seems like it it worked great for like keeping everybody engaged. You know, if if somebody starts straggling behind and we get to a cool section to session, then we just start session and try in different things. And everybody has fun. And when everybody regroups, we give them a chance to try and then just move on. So how do you deal with like, I've led some rides before and I'm so terrified that someone's going to like try something and get hurt. So how do you deal with that as the ride leader? Uh, that's always a tricky thing. <laughs> um, you know, you try to 
try to keep everybody in check and try to gently persuade their egos to not try stuff if it's dangerous and also like trying not to encourage anybody in general to try anything super dangerous. So we're typically doing like more technical stuff than like dangerous stuff. I wouldn't really feel super confident pulling up to like a 10 foot cliff and trying to encourage somebody to try it for the first time. Yeah. So there's no real science to it, I guess. Maybe there should be, but as of right now, there's not. And like, what would you say to new people getting into the sport now? Like maybe they're young, maybe they're not young, but they're just getting into mountain biking. How do you encourage them to stay in the sport and to make sure that they keep it fun? Because a lot of times we end up taking ourselves too seriously. Yeah. I would say if you're just getting into the sport, probably stay off Strava because that could, you know, that's fun and addictive at first. And then it ends up sucking the fun out of it because, you know, when you first start doing it, you get this addictive thing where you're getting all your personal bests and whatever. And it's just like anything else, like eventually the gains become smaller and it becomes less rewarding. So if you're just doing it for that, that could be a challenge. I would say riding with groups always makes it fun. And I would also encourage people you know, the two main things that make you a better rider and make you have more fun is, you know, just the general fitness that comes with riding. Like riding is more fun the fitter you are. Every, you know, spring riding is not as fun for me as it is in the middle of the summer when you just feel like Superman. But um, also, like I said, going out and trying to have fun on your bike. If you live in a city, a lot of people might not think to just go out on their mountain bike and just go for a ride at night with your friends. And, you know, you might be a 35 year old woman, but hop some, jump some curbs and, and have fun, you know, ride around, ride down some stairs. All those skills that you learn are going to help you on the trail. And like we said earlier, when you're out on a trail ride and with your, and when you're with a group, you might not want to make people wait, or you might not want to wait to stop in session. So you just dedicate a day a week or something like that to just going out and having fun and improving your skill. That's going to make you have more fun, go faster, ride smoother, all that kind of stuff as well. Okay. And then my last question is, you know, people are getting into the sport and now a question I get all the time is, well, there's all these different bikes. Like what bike should I buy? There's all these different suspension sizes. There's like 29, 27, five plus bikes, e-bikes, like what would you recommend to somebody if they're just trying to buy a bike? You know, there's so many different bikes on the market nowadays, and you could kind of like make those decisions based off of the terrain that you want to ride. But, you know, there's always a big hot topic in the industry is how relevant are local bike shops nowadays. And that's these are the kind of situations where a good local bike shop is going to be invaluable because you could go online and buy a bike online but you're going to have to make those decisions based off of what you think that if, you know, if you're truly a beginner, what you think you need or whatever. But if you go into a local bike shop and the guys or girls there really know what they're talking about and you tell them what you want to do, they're going to know the local trails and they're going to know the type of bike that you need to accomplish what you want to do. So that's definitely probably the best way to find like the local resource because you know, a beginner rider in Florida or Wisconsin is going to probably want a hardtail bike. You know, it, it's going to give you your best value and you don't need suspension living in those places. So why waste tons of money on your first bike for that? But if you're living in Colorado or Arizona, you're pro- chances are you're probably going to need some suspension and you're probably going to need a, a decent amount of it. So 
just trying to find a, a good local bike shop or even a good local club. Joining a local club, those guys could be pretty valuable as well. Awesome. That's really great advice because, yeah, it could be really confusing for people. So what are the top videos that people should go check out on your YouTube channel? And what is your YouTube channel? I know you've already said it, but for people that might not have heard it. <laughs> yeah, my YouTube channel, you could look up Jeff Flanoski Trail Boss. And it is a whole bunch of different stuff. You know, I try, try to do the aspirational stuff, which are just the pure Trail Boss videos. And it's all on a Trail Boss channel and all gets blended together. But a true Trail Boss video is, is a video of me riding a trail that has some type of reputation of having like some super challenging reputation. But then huge component of my channel now is just more fun ride alongs. Typically with those, like it'll be a trail though. So like if you're watching a, a video, like I just did one from Roanoke, Virginia last week, and it was a trail called Doty Ridge. Like if you watch that video, you're pretty much getting a general idea of what that entire trail looks like. It might not show the entire trail, but it's going to show from start to finish and stuff like that. So I typically try to make like those ride along videos where it focuses on a particular trail. So it wouldn't be Jeff in Sedona. It's going to be Jeff on Highline Trail. And it might be me following you and we're going to ride Highline Trail. And if anybody ever watches that video, then they have a pretty good idea of what that trail looks like. And it's a good heads up, you know, whether or not you want to try it. And if you try it, what it looks like to ride certain sections and stuff like that. And then the most fun stuff and, the you know, obviously the most engaging is the how-to videos. So if you go to my channel, I have a playlist and there's how-to videos like the one that you talked about. It really is a how-to-do drops, but I called it how not to drop because I had some user submitted, you know, fails or close calls. And I use those as an opportunity to just point out like what those riders did wrong and try to give them tips to like not have that happen again. And I also have stuff like, you know, tips for riding flat pedals, how to do bunny hop alternatives. That was a really popular video last year. How to ride balance lines, you know, like different skinnies, tips for improving your balance. So there's a whole bunch of different stuff on there. So it's basically like the trail boss videos to empower you and kind of inspire you and the how-to stuff to try to educate you that if you're a beginner or whatever, or even an experienced rider, maybe there's a takeaway, something you didn't think about prior to that. So it's kind of all over the board. But it's basically, if you're into mountain bike trail riding, that's the place to go. Do you ever get nervous when people are like, oh, this trail is so gnarly, like blah, blah, blah. Like, do you worry about it? 100%. It's, <laughs> there's so many times where <laughs> I've been riding forever and you still might drop in and I'll be like, driving to the trail and I'm like, oh my God, Sonia's so good. She said this trail's gnarly. Am I going to be good enough? Can I handle it? Can I hang with her? Whatever. I don't think there's a person in the world that's 100% self-confident that always believes in himself. My favorite time in the world is when you're just following somebody down a trail and you just lose yourself and you're just coming off of complete like natural reaction and you're following a good rider and you know that like your similar ability level and if you just do what they do, you're going to be good and you're not thinking about stuff. You're not contemplating can i do this you're just in that like mind state where you're just going with the flow and going off total instinct that's that's honestly my favorite thing to do in the world when you go to ride a trail for the first time and somebody's filming you and you're dropping into a technical section and there aren't other riders they're similar skill level and it's like you're trying it for the first time and people are watching like it's hard some it's really hard sometimes you know you're you're wondering 
can I do it? Am I even a good rider? Like the mind games that go through your head, it could be a real challenge. So yeah, I don't know. It, I just like to follow a good rider down a trail for the first time and, and you just lose yourself in that riding by instinct. And it's one of the best feelings in the world. A lot of times people think that pro riders never walk their bike and you know, I do walk my bike down stuff. I don't know if you do, but I just want to give you the opportunity to tell people if you do or not, just cause uh, I was wondering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I will definitely, there's no shame in walking your bike down anything. There have certainly been times that I have walked my bike down things. If it's safe, I'll session it until I can make it. But it's those things where, you know, sometimes you just weigh the risk and the reward and, you know, you just have to be realistic. There's plenty of times where I'll be out on the trail and I'm just not feeling it that particular day, or maybe it just purely is over my pay grade or you might be able to pull it, but what is the consequence? And there's nothing wrong with uh, living to ride another day. Yeah, it's really hard because like there's certain times where it's like I'll have ridden a section before and then I'm not feeling it that day. Or maybe it's a section I've never ridden, but I know I'm capable of it. But that day I decide to walk it. I have a really hard time letting that go. And I beat myself up so much and I get so mad that I didn't ride that section of trail because I know I'm capable of it. And I think it's important just for people to know that like it's okay to not ride something. And there's also times where, yeah, it's like you might have ridden it a hundred times, but that day you just felt sketched out and you walked it. And there's really no shame in that, but it is hard to like let it go sometimes too. <laughs> it, it really is. But mountain biking is such a fun sport. And, you know, if you try something and you get hurt, then you can't ride. And Sometimes it's, you know, it's just being realistic with yourself and it doesn't mean you're not a good rider. You just weren't feeling it that particular day, especially if it's something that is local, then I could really mentally balance that one out in my head because I could just be like, well, I don't want to ride today, but I'll just do it next time or whatever. <laughs> when it's something that like, you know, it's like your one chance ever to ride it. Those are the ones that are hard to pass up because then you like, you know, you battle yourself and you're like, oh, I should have done it or whatever. But um, if it's something that like I've done before or I think in my head I could at least convince myself that I can do or it's something that I will have the opportunity to do, I don't really have any problem coming back another day. Awesome. Well, you mentioned your YouTube channel. Where else can people find you if they want to connect with you? Instagram is a good place. It's just at Jeff Lenoski. And if anybody's still on Facebook, I'm on, I'm, I have an athlete. If I have an athlete page on there, it seems to me nowadays, YouTube is definitely by far the best for engagement. I feel like I have the best conversations with fans and things like that from YouTube and Instagram. And then, you know, if people are still on Facebook, I'm in the process of putting together a. Uh, so for next year, for 2019, I want to put together a tour of 10 mountain bike festivals where people could come and ride with me and go on trial boss group rides and and all that kind of stuff so i'm in the process of putting together a website for that so by 2019 that'll launch and if so, you could check out the whole schedule and figure out if there's a place near you where you could join me or, or whatever but i'd say if you subscribe to my youtube channel then you'd just get an update when that happens because i haven't totally nailed down the uh what the website's going to be it's probably going to be trailbossmtb.com if you subscribe to my YouTube channel, then you definitely won't miss it. Yeah. Awesome, Jeff. <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on the show. And thanks for giving us so many awesome nuggets of knowledge spanning like so many different things. Yeah, this was a ton of fun. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks.
Jeff is such a fun dude to talk to. And he and I are always in passing when we see each other. It's like 10 minutes here, five minutes there. And it was really fun to get to sit down and have an hour long conversation. And that is my favorite thing about having a podcast is that there are very few times anymore where we actually sit down and talk to somebody, even somebody that we don't know very well. Like some of my guests I've never talked to before and have an hour long conversation with them. And it's just a really great way to feel connected. It's a cool way to just be a better listener. Like this podcast has definitely made me a better listener because if you're not listening, you can't help direct the progression of the show. And you really want to be able to get out the information that these guests love talking about and also that's going to be relevant to you guys. So thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. Make sure you check out Jeff's YouTube channel and his Instagram. I know that he's looking forward to connecting with a bunch of you. And I hope you have an amazing holiday. I hope that you have calm moments and you can enjoy the hectic moments and you can let your hair down and relax a little bit. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for being part of my community. And we'll see you right back here next week.